Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast um, on all things thick, including crypto. Um, my name is Colin Lambert, and with me as always is Galen Stops, P&L's editor. Um, last week, Galen was um, our Scandinavia conference, so I unfortunately couldn't make it. Um, you fortunately could. Um, what would you say the highlight for you was of P&L Copenhagen? Um, yeah, so, so there were a number. I mean, I, I, pers- I selfishly enjoyed the panels I was on uh, looking at kind of um, how firms are kind of learning to, to kind of thrive and, and work in the more kind of data-driven environment of today and also uh, benchmarking algos. But, but one thing that particularly caught my eye actually was um, the opening panel session. We had a number of strategists and macroeconomists talking about kind of what they're seeing in the market and, and some of the key th- themes and trends. Um, and, and one debate opened up, which I thought was kind of interesting because it's, it's one I've heard for a while. And basically, um, it was talking about FX volatility, right? And obviously, you know, we've seen, we, we've talked about this before. You'd think with everything going on in the world right now, volatility would be substantially higher than it has been this year. Yeah. Um, and people were talking about, you know, a lot of the reason why FX volatility has been subdued is it's central bank policy. Um, and just, you know, just the fact that in order to kind of trade in FX and make returns, you have to make assumptions about central bank policy and how that's going to impact certain currencies. Um, and therefore, one of the, one of the people on the panel argued that it's hard to make returns and people kind of look to fixed income instead a lot of the time to kind of trade, invest and make returns. Um, but they went on to say that, that FX is less efficient than fixed income, uh, that these market inefic- inefficiencies create excess returns um, and that ultimately next year volatility will go up as there's going to be opportunities to trade structural breaks in the market. Um, now, the interesting thing is I, I've heard the case for FX volatility is coming back next year. I would say every year for the last four or five years now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every year, whether it's the US elections or Brexit or European elections or uh, you know, central banks starting to move in different directions to, okay, they didn't move in different directions that much, uh, last year, but that, you know, the US is really starting to hike now, et cetera. I, I kind of have heard the argument that, that FX vol is just around the corner. Um, you know, you know, in December of every year, we kind of talk to people about, you know, what are you expecting for the next year? And, uh, mm-hmm. everyone, maybe, maybe this is just natural optimism, but uh, everyone always predicts FX vol next year, definitely for sure, this time. Um, and we haven't really seen it. Perhaps, yeah. Um, and, and so, so the other half of the people on the panel kind of, uh, came back arguing, uh, one person commented that, you know, uh, uh, typically a reliable driver of FX volatility has been, uh, the U.S. labor market and the numbers coming out of there. And they argued that actually the U.S. is slowing more than prices refre- reflect right now. Uh, and that the Fed's eventually going to have to do some heavy lifting there. And their argument was that we're actually going to have structurally low volatility for, for some time now. Um, what's, what's your verdict on this? Are the, uh, is FX vol coming back? Not coming back? Sort of, is this the, is this um, the environment we can expect for the foreseeable future? I kind of sit with the second camp, I have to say, but I think, I think there's going to be plenty of FX vol. I mean, this is, it's a misnomer that there's been no FX vol this year. Um, if you look at the ranges we've seen on quite a few currency pairs, They've moved quite a long way. It's it's like the old British Rail thing back in the day. Oh, you know, all their trains stopped because it was. We know it snowed, but it was the wrong type of snow. 
And there's too many people <laughs> out there saying it's the wrong type of vol. And, well, no, it, vol, the market is what it is. And I kind of think that these are the people sitting there thinking, and this is great that I'm saying this, you know, one of the bigger dinosaurs out there. Uh, you know, they're saying, oh, you know, they're trying to judge this through historical prisms. And that's not how you do it. You have to be more up to date. The market structure has changed. The nature of electronic trading, electronic price making, the use of new technologies means that the nature of the market has changed. And therefore, we have plenty of vol. It's just different. So if you're measuring... We have plenty of vol, but, but it appears in, what, two minutes in, in the end and yeah. start of the year? Yeah, although I think it's a little bit more complex than that. I, I kind of look at it and think to myself, what we see is we see the event happen. We get an immediate price move um, as the algos price it in. We then get a bit of a mean reversion. And then after that, you kind of get the move, the real move, when people who are sitting and like, well, I missed that move because I can't deal within a nanosecond, you know, when the price changed. But then they look at it and go, okay, now they reevaluate and go, well, the market's there. I think I can, I think I can price that. And I can, or I can trade that. And they'll take a position and you'll get a move, but it just won't be as big a move. Because what you do, you get a more considered move now. You don't, you get the immediate knee-jerk reaction and then you get the small reversion and then you get a considered move, whereas in the past it would be what these people, you know, the, what the people in your first camp are, are arguing is, well, it used to be that the news had come out and the market had moved two big figures. And I have some sympathy for that because I, I looked at it myself for many years going, like, well, why is it not moving more than it is? I think if you look at it, it probably is. It's just moving slower. And in a world that's very data heavy, there's always going to be another data point around the corner, and that kind of discourages people from really going gung-ho into a position on the back of one number because the next number or the next statement, you know, particularly in a world where you've got you know, the American president tweeting whatever happens to be on his mind at 5 a.m., um, that becomes a real challenge because all of a sudden you go, well, I go into this position, and then they tweet something opposite, or an another indicator comes out that's a bit confusing, or we have risk off which I still don't get, you know, risk off, risk on. It's, you know, there can't be a global risk on, risk off. Um, but it's just different volatility, and I think people have to calibrate their models towards that. Um, will we ever go back to, you know, vol when it moves multiple big figures, you know, around events? I can't see it. Which, if nothing else, will say there's going to be vol next year. That, that should that should seal, seal the deal. <laughs> and so then, I mean, is, is this this kind of, change and have the nature involved uh good news bad news neither for the fx industry I, I think it is what it is um and i think you know yeah i, I think it's <laughs> you can try and change it you can you can rage against the uh the wind or whatever the statement the comment is but um the quote is but uh i don't think it is what it is um i think we will live in a world until we get to a stage whereby more people are taking risk and it's there's more random risk taking which sounds a bit strange at the moment you know it, a lot of feeds through you've got equity markets where i saw something the other week that said like passive investing is something like 65 percent i may be wrong on that number i'm sure that's a number to grab my attention but it, passive investing is a huge part of equity markets that inevitably means we're going to get these swings in the market 
because they're all going to be looking at the same data. They're all going to be <clears throat> roughly trading the same sort of pattern. The market's going to go the same way. In FX, you know, that's creating big hedging positions at certain times of day. So there's volatility around times of day. I saw some data today that said that, you know, over the last 10 years, volatility and market volumes in equity markets have shifted from a fairly even pattern to about 60% of volume going through at the close. So everyone's trying to trade on the benchmark at the close. Now, there's all sorts of market abuse problems there, I'm sure. But the fact is that highlights that it's passive investing. And under that, yeah. under those terms, I don't see how you get the huge volatility because you don't get the, you, you don't get that sort of um, contrast of views that creates the vol. You know, an, an event happens and the market's either right or wrong. If it's right, well, not a lot happens really, just drifts a bit higher. If it's wrong, you get a very sharp move lower, as I described, you know, a couple of minutes ago, and then nothing. Whereas back in the day, you would have people sitting there going like, un under the initial model that your, you know, that your speakers were talking about, you'd have people, half the people would go, great, I can get on this move, and half the people are trying to get out of it. Then there's other kind of, I don't think the move's overdone. You've got so many different views coming in. And at the moment in FX, we don't have different views coming in because um, a large proportion of what we do is hedging business for clients. It used to be you'd have bank traders sitting there putting risk on. Um, it, you know, if you look at them now, what are they doing? They're managing flow and they might take some risk on for some period of time, but it's not a conscious decision to actually trade that risk and to put that risk on. It's generally speaking from a customer trade of some sort so no I'm, I'm i'm i think i'm with you know is it a good thing it is what it is and i'm i think i'm probably in the second camp that says vol will you know vol will it will be there but it will just be different and it was interesting actually, right. on, on a similar, you know because i was at a um i was at an event today and it was it was very equities focused and one of the observations there was around how um the sort of market are struggling with um random volatility and um someone said oh the biggest the biggest problem we have is consolidation um the speed of technology and liquidity a lack of liquidity and i'm going well yeah for years equity's been saying they're in front of fx and now all of a sudden equity's having the same discussions we've been having for three or four years in fx and i suspect the volatility they're complaining about is the volatility you were talking about in copenhagen um, and so, so you think then, you know, we talk about, as you said, FX following 80s, do you think the reverse is starting to happen now in terms of market structure? Yeah, I do. I mean, yeah, we we discussed this a few weeks ago around speed bumps. You know, that is basically, I mean, it was interesting. There was someone there, um, it was all under Chatham House, so I can't quote people directly, but there was someone there who um, spent a long time claiming they weren't in the high frequency game, but also let slip that they actually own microwave towers that they built in RV lots in Philadelphia or somewhere like that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, if you're not in the high-frequency game, Shagger, then what the hell are you doing buying microwave towers? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do type, kind of think, you know, you've got the speed bump issue. They're worrying about liquidity. They're worrying about market manipulation around closes. And we've had this with the S&P VIX, haven't we? You know, where by you get some really strange trading going on towards the close as they try and bully the market towards one level or another. 
Um, whenever you have a fix in market, you're going to get that because, you know, yes, you're going to get the natural flow, but in a world where everyone's the same way, and I think this is where equities are going to face the same issue as FX has with the WM fix. Yeah, it sounds great. We all, we all net all our trades off and the balance is traded and we have our close. But in a world where everyone's going the same way, that close becomes really problematic and you need people to take risk. So I do think, yeah, I, I, I tend to think that the big issues in the in the equities world over the next, you know, maybe two years could be very familiar to people in in the FX world. So, yeah, we shall see. Um, one thing I wanted to raise, actually, and this is definitely um, right up our strata, um, quantum computing. Obviously, you would publish <laughs> Uh, degree and me with my uh, five O levels. Look them up, kids. They used to exist. Um, quantum computing was a subject today. And before we go any further, I, <laughs> I had to share this story with you. So there was a speaker there talking quantum computing, and it was very interesting, I have to say. And there's a usual mind blowing, you know, statistics and numbers and so on and so forth. Um, but this speaker said, "Oh well, what? Let's give you an example, and let's take the New York phone book, which apparently is the biggest phone book in the world, and it's A to Z." And we're going to set you the task of finding one number in that phone book. And obviously, using classical computing, it's going to take a long while. And they went, quantum computing can do this time. And then some guy in the audience just shouted out, why don't you just ring the number and ask who it is? (laughs) 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 Which (laughs) he acknowledged acknowledged the the quality of the question, should we say. But it did put him on the back foot for a bit. more seriously, I mean, the quantum computing thing, you know, I know you talk to people about it. You know, I do occasionally. It does seem otherworldly. But then, generally speaking, what we're talking about here is computing power. You know, and he was going into all the stuff around qubits and so on. You know, and there's clearly a trend to grow and to make quantum computing more powerful. Um, and he was talking about quantum um, uh, supremacy, I think it was, where it actually can solve problems much quicker than you know than than current methods um and actually and actually set and, and identify the problems coming quicker obviously quantum computing is normally set at problem solving but when it comes to finance and markets how do you you know what are people telling you about it because i look at it and go i think it can it can have an impact the problem is for me that and most of that impact is going to be around data. And the longer you wait for data, the more the market's already moved. But what, you know, what's the so, problem from the people you talk to? So, so I'm going to give this, first of all, the, the caveat that I think quantum computing and finance is still a, a long way off. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, quantum computing well, actually, in general, sorry, I mean, I know... Sorry, I need to stop you there because actually um, quantum computing has actually been used quite a lot around option pricing using the Monte Carlo. Um, so, because Monte Carlo is quite error-strewn. And um, my understanding is that there's a lot of people using very basic level, and you're right on that stage, very basic level quantum computing to actually reduce the error rate in their Monte Carlo simulations. Yeah, you didn't expect that, did you? Ah, carry on. I did, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm buying. <laughs> facts. I need any facts, mate. You know that most of the time. Um, but I, I think it's generally a long way off. I know kind of Google had kind of something of a breakthrough recently where they unveiled um, some of its quantum computing, 
but but that was set to a very specific problem that the quantum computing is good at and yes it, it performed well um but so i think i think it's still quite a long way off uh, for anything effective it's only going to be effective for certain problems and issues um yep. that being said the conversations that i have around quantum computing tend to be around security issues um okay. i think the the first time i really encountered it was uh at a uh, kind of a blockchain event uh this was 2015, 16, I think, when the blockchain hype, you know, when we'd had the, the kind of the Bitcoin, the, the initial Bitcoin surge, and then the, it was all the blockchain hype. And I was talking to a uh, a, a VC, a, a blockchain investor, who was, you know, talking about, you know, the things that kept him out, up at night when it comes to investing in blockchain and blockchain firms. And he said that one of his biggest concerns was that, um, you know, quantum computing is going to render all this obsolete um, because. You know, one of the things that was te- that has been touted about, for example, blockchain uh, technology is that it's more secure because there's all these different nodes on the network, right? So you'd have to hack. Let's say there's you know 100 nodes on the network, you have to hack at least 51, depending on the consensus mechanism. You might have to hack more, um, which is harder than obviously just hacking one person. But obviously, yeah. quantum computing um, can render some of those security measures because it functions so differently to classical computing. A lot of the traditional encryption security methods, et cetera, that are used in classical computing um, don't aren't secure against quantum computing. Um, so I think nice. that, that if it does become more mainstream, I think that's going to be a huge question. Um, and again, look, it could be, it could be an overblown um, security firm of uh, security concern, you know, Y2K-esque, but I think yes. it's a big question if it's become mainstream. Not and that that was a blockchain example, but I think for for large financial institutions in general, which is you know if this technology becomes more applicable, do they have to suddenly review from top to bottom their entire security layer and protocols? Yeah, well, I I think yeah, I mean it's <clears throat> I guess it's, this is when you look at fe- I, it's a, not a phrase I like, but future proofing your business. Um, if this quantum computing does take off, and I really cannot believe I'm having a conversation about quantum computing on this podcast. If quantum computing does, you know, like does deliver what is promised, you know, by speakers such as I saw today, um, then we're looking at security systems now that we think are going to be good in 2030, 2040, but actually may be done by 2021. And I guess that's your point, isn't it? Yeah. So completely. it's more of an so it's more of a challenge then for the infrastructure providers than it would be mainly maybe for traders as such. We're not looking at this as a trader yeah. using this stuff to get an edge. No, no, no. So, so the most of the conversations I've had thus far are people being concerned um, on kind of the yeah more the business side, uh, like how do I how do I protect my business? How do I protect all the data that I have stored up there uh, in a, in a quantum world? Yeah. Um, we'll see. I mean, one thing I wanted to bring up, Colin, yeah. is you, you, you mentioned, uh, raging at the wind earlier. Um, I, I read a column of yours, uh, just earlier and I, I thought I clicked on a, on the wrong link. I thought I clicked on a 2016 P&L link. Um, because, uh, last look was back it's on back, the menu. It's back, baby. It's back. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so I've got to be in my bonnet again against last look. Um, what can I say? I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I honestly thought the issue was dead. 
And I was trying to work out the last time I actually wrote about Last Look explicitly, not mentioned it, because I mentioned it quite a lot. But it was actually it was actually nearly a year ago. And it was this this sense that the global code with disclosures and everything has has kind of solved the um, the global the the last look issue. Um, recently, I've been having more conversations with people that suggest to me that it's not gone away. And I think if you look at it, if you look at the global code as a whole, there are two areas of contention: pre-hedging, principle eleven, and last look, principle seventeen. Everything else, there is general consensus that you know, with the odd tweak here and there, and the odd you know, outlier maybe in opinion, everything else is fine. I think pre-hedging, if we're talking the appropriate disclosures, we can solve that problem. The client either likes it or they don't. And we just make sure we know who's responsible if it goes right and who if it goes wrong. Last look, on the other hand, is still an issue because at the moment we've got, you know, we, we published an interview I did with Guy DeBell um maybe a couple of months ago when he spoke about the caveat emptor i as in a disclosure that says we use last look in this case and you know and that's fine you now know that we use it well what i've sort of i mean two years ago three years ago i wrote a column saying like we've got a situation on platforms whereby um an lp is taking 25 milliseconds to accept a trade average over a month and they're taking 200 milliseconds to reject the trade. It's the same technology. It's the same pipe. How can that be? Why are they holding it any longer? Now, you know, you could argue, as no doubt you will in a second, that they're, you know, they're giving the customer trade more time to get on call. This rubbish, I cannot get it. I cannot, I cannot stand with that argument because, A, if the flow is toxic, it's not the market's not coming back, and all you're doing is actually make telling giving the client a longer time before they realise they haven't done the trade. If it's not toxic, then what the hell are you doing last looking at it anyway? Because if it's a customer you make money out of on a portfolio basis, you shouldn't be last looking them and holding them and doing this check on them. So there's that aspect to it. The same technology, why are we holding people different times for accepting and rejecting a trade? The more recent issue is something that's come up and You've got LPs out there, and I have to say, not all LPs do this. I've spoken to a, quite a lot of, officially there will be nothing coming out of these institutions and, and traders, but unofficially they're telling me that there's quite a few that are, are standard on this. There are a few that aren't. And again, same pipe, same technology, and yet one customer gets a, a 20 second, 25 millisecond hold time, because maybe they're trading on, um, you know, uh, sterling or a Commonwealth currency where the refinitive updates are currently at 25 milliseconds. And so they want to do one market check. Another client gets a whole time of 100 milliseconds. That's a commercial decision. That's, you know, the global code says you should be looking, using last look as a credit and market risk check. I'm looking at that saying but you are not then using it. You're using it as a, as a commercial check. But isn't it a market risk check if, if one client's just kind of running over the market and the other one isn't? Well, um, let me put it this way. If everybody um, put the same client on the same risk check, what would happen? Nothing would happen for 100 milliseconds. They'd all do their, they'd all do their, um, you know, their, their checks and their extended checks. And all that happened is 105 milliseconds, the market disappeared and they'll be trying to hit the same bid. 
so I think you know there's 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 that element to it as well. Um, I think you got I got some sympathy for the whole thing about toxic flow. The problem is is that if you're if you're holding it for longer, you're making a, a, a decision saying we know this guy's going to run over me, and therefore we are going to protect ourselves for a bit longer. That's not about market risk. That's about the dollars and cents that guy's going to cost you. And that's a commercial decision. I mean, I don't, I don't actually hold there should be a market risk check. If you don't like the pr- price, why make it? Um, the way to protect against toxic flow is to widen the price. What is, what is, what is market risk except the risk that you're going to lose money in the market? Well, no, because the thing is, market risk is a market risk both ways, isn't it? Because you look at asymmetric last look, and it basically says, you know, like um, uh, fast match as it was then. Put it out on some one of my friends humorously called it last match on the on the with the last look they they conduct a last look check and say if the market has moved more than a certain um spread away from where the trade is the trade is not done it's not sent to the l p they can't see the information the client just gets a not a not executed thing it works both ways for the client so if it goes in the client's favor it works for them if it goes against them it works against them this is literally deliberately saying. If this client is trading with me, I am going to hold this for longer so that I can make sure I don't lose any money from them. Why are you quoting them? Why are you quoting this client? Why are they even a client of yours? And certainly, why are you giving them your top spread? Quote them wider. And at the moment, the global code says you can do last look for a market risk and a credit risk check. I don't consider, you know, what they're saying is, in a nutshell, is we can do a market risk check in 25 milliseconds because they can. And that's what they do for most of their clients. But for this guy, oh, no, this guy's another 75 milliseconds on top. How's that a market risk check? The market risk check, take, you know, the market risk check takes 25 milliseconds. How can it suddenly be 100 for somebody else? I don't get it. And I but think you, it's one of the – sorry? If you said to a client, okay – you got two options. They're either gonna um, you're either gonna have this whole time, longer hold time, and be quoted at this type of spread, or yep. it will reduce the whole time but a wider spread. Which do you think they go for? Um, I think that will vary by client, but most of them will go for the tighter spread and they'll take the 30% reject rates. But <clears throat> what's happening? The thing is at the moment is I think some of these clients are unaware that that's going on. So clients, you know, are not. We, we we need to get to a world in that situation whereby either we say last look is not to be used for commercial purposes and everything needs to be symmetrical. So if you can do a market risk check in 25 milliseconds for 99 clients, you'd do it for the 100th. Or we turn around and say, yep, you can use last look for commercial purposes. However, you have to make sure every client in the interest of transparency, which is what this is all about, in the interest of transparency – Every client needs to know what their average hold time is and why, and how it represent how it works against their peers. Because then they can turn around and they've got all the information to hand. I, I mean, there's something around in the global code. Like I've got a copy here. Funnily enough, I don't I don't often sleep with it, but sometimes a market participant should be transparent <laughs> regarding its large look practices in order for the client to understand and to be able to make an informed decision as to the manner in which last look is applied to their trading. And it goes on to like you know what they should disclose at a minimum. Well, I would argue that if you've got different clients on different last look times, hold times, 
then those clients need to be individually appraised of what that is and what the average is for that LP. And the client can then turn around so and make their own decision. So then do we come back that this isn't really an issue with last look, but it's a disclosure issue? Well, yeah. I mean, to be fair, last look, you know, the reason we thought we'd solve the problem of last look is because of disclosures. Um, so, yeah, you're probably right. What I'm saying is the last look, the disclosures around last look, we've been looking at cover and deal, and that's kind of taken everyone's attention off this for a couple of years while the GFXC has been talking cover and deal. What I'm saying is the disclosures around last look need to be more explicit and these aren't public disclosures I'm, i want to stress here i'm not talking public disclosures what i'm saying is the global code i believe should turn around and in, and um is the word encourage or guide provide the adequate guideline that says if you are using different hold times for different types of flow you need to make sure that the client who is on the receiving end of that understands that they are getting this average hold time and that this is the average for the for the um, for you for that LP. If we're totally transparent, then we're not going to turn around and have somebody turn around in three years' time and go, okay, well here's my lawsuit because you know we're retrofitting behaviour. And before anyone says it's not going to happen again, it won't happen. Look what happened with chat rooms. You know the legal the regulators retrofitted um, modern you know modern rules onto old behaviour. The same could happen with this. We need to we need to tie it down. Um, I made the point in the column. Yeah, we're in a period of reform for FX, but that period of reform cannot last forever. We need to get our house in order at some stage, and I honestly believe this is the only thing that can turn around and bite us on the rear end as an industry. I think everything else has been cleaned up. The one area of real contention is still going to be last look, and this is an opportunity to to clear the problem. So there, last look solved. Um, Done. Next. Exactly. Yes, I'm, we're we're pretty much done as well, actually. But I did want to. I, I thought we did have to do a tip of the hat um, to. Um, well, I guess it's a tip of the hat to the regulator, but I think it's a tip of the hat to good old-fashioned behaviour. Um, you may have noticed. You, I know you've actually been um, running around doing a lot of admin stuff and personal stuff this week, so you're on holiday. But you may have noticed that Tullet or TPI Cap was fined by the FCA in the UK for the actions of Tullet Prebond brokers back in 2008-10. And the... Um, did you see it? It's brilliant. They were fine, yeah. quote, unquote, for lavish over-entertaining. That is old school, my friend. That is old school. That, and I, I'm not convinced we should be criticising people for lavish over-entertaining. It's, um, <laughs> it's not something you see in, in this day and age much, is it? Very much, is it? I know. Um, in, in, in the days of, like, billion dollars fines for, like, you know, allegedly, you know, uh, manipulating markets, etc. It almost seems quaint to uh, to be finding someone for uh, over lavish entertaining, doesn't it? Well, yes, it's exactly. And it's like uh, the interesting thing for me actually was they use the, they use the phrase wash trades, which is a very exchange listed listed derivative um, phrase. Um, Funny enough, it's coming from a regulator that only understands that model. But they use the the phrase wash trades. So. And what they so what happened was apparently, as I understand it, the brokers would take the dealers out lavishly, quote unquote, over and over entertain them, and then they go back and the bro and the dealer would stick a few trades through for the broker. Now back in the day, it used to be that you get name switches, and so a broker would come and say, look, you know, I know you can do 
the you know back in the day it was the national bank of hungary whereas other this is in the communist era this is how old i am um look it up kids it did used to exist in eastern europe um you can do national bank of hungary this guy over here can't would you mind stepping in and doing a trade with both of them and just say let's use barclays so you do you you sell 10 million pounds to barclays at this rate and you buy 10 million pounds at the same rate from national bank hungary you're basically becoming a credit facilitator generally speaking you never pay bro on that i kind of get the impression what's happened here is the dealers are sitting they're going like okay you've taken me out for lunch that's fantastic here's a couple of trades that aren't going to cost me any money but it's going to cost me bro now isn't that like saying well if the turkeys want to vote for christmas let them because that broker comes out of that dealer's bottom line if he's happy to if he's happy to pay for his lavish over entertaining with a few trades, well, right. yeah, I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I think the thing is we need to know what the lavish over entertaining was. I'm guessing it wasn't a couple uh, of tickets about, to West Ham on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> I know. I want to know exactly how lavish is like what constitutes lavish in the FCA terminology. Exactly. We need a benchmark for lavish. There we go. Um, on which note, we will end this week. Thank you very much as ever for listening. And we'll be back next week to talk about all things, um, whatever comes into our mind on the day. Um, Thanks for listening, and we will speak to you next week.